Welcome to another exciting episode of Scuttlebutt, the official podcast of the National Museum of the Surface Navy. Uh, we're doing a little bit of a remote recording here. We've got uh, Mike and Moran on the ship and myself remote, and we're joined also remote by Jose Hernandez, uh, self-described rigor at large from Midcoast, Maine. Uh, I like to say man about town, all around good guy, friend of the downtrodden, and uh, also worked on uh, Constitution. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Cool. We're all the mariners. We're all the, the, the people who weren't smart enough to get off the boat. Yeah, exactly. um, smart enough to get off it or dumb enough to get on it to begin maybe, with. Maybe so. Maybe that's maybe. the right, right thing. You know, we all have a, a maritime background here. Um, and uh, frankly, since you're the guest, I'd love to hear a little bit of, of uh, Jose's background. I know you've worked on the USS Constitution, still a commission ship, but yes. I, I know you have a wealth of experience beyond that. You tie big knots. I, I tie big knots, I tie little knots, uh, <laughs> a variety of different things. Uh, what I like to say, as, as a rigger, you live and die by your knots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think it's very important, you know, uh, not just the decorative stuff. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoyed about, say, working on the Constitution is the fact that she's from the golden age of sail, where um, she was a rope rig. And so there was a lot of uh, artistry, a lot of fancy knotwork inside connected as part of the, say, standing rigging or running rigging, you know, uh, a lot of things that were not only functional, but beautiful. Uh, That's what you've always talked me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before I, I go any further into that, I suppose. So background, I started sailing... Uh, back when I was in college in the 80s, um, I started sailing on regular boats, yachty, plastic boats, as I call them now. And uh, so I did that for over like 10 years. And I would watch the L.A. Maritime schooners, uh, the Bill of Rights and the Swift of Ipswich, sail in and out of L.A. Harbor there. And I thought, gee, I would so love to crew on something like that. And then I read in the local sail rag, the log, um, that it was a volunteer organization. So that was it for me. I started. And uh, that's, this was around just before the turn of the century. Back in the <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I started there. And then shortly thereafter, uh, one of the volunteers gave this phenomenal rigging seminar uh, just on a weekend. But he really packed it. His name is Lindsay Philpott. I learned an awful lot from him and that got the ball rolling and I would show up any time that there was any rigging uh, to be done, uh, you know, little things like patch serving or, you know, swaying up top mist or whatever, or crossing yards. So I uh, learned a lot from them um, and some others. And then later on, Lammy, I was working as a biologist at the time. When Lammy started building the brigantines, I started volunteering half days there uh thanks to my boss at the lab and uh then uh before you know it they started paying me because i was there every day i had all my tools and i knew what i was doing so they said okay we'll pay you so that was like my first real professional rigging gig and it kind of snowballed from there so you've worked all over the country then on various ships and, and maybe backing up for a moment for people who don't really understand what this means you know, the, the rigging on a, a sailing vessel is, in fact, everything you see, all of the ropes, yeah. the standing rigging, which holds up the mast, the running rigging, which runs the sails. And even though I'm an engineer, I know just a little bit about that. But 
Um, there's an awful lot to that. There's a real science to it as well. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's all applied physics. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a great, if, if physics classes had a tall ship as a lab, they would teach, more people would probably go into physics. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. And, the giant, uh, giant vectored force problem, right? Exactly right, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. So all of us have some kind of maritime background. Um, you know, I, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> well, mine's more like less the same as Jose's. Yeah, I, just, I think uh, I had it in the back of my head when I maybe sailed small boats twice in my life. And uh, I all kinds of maritime books and movies and all of that. And then in 2003 or four, I saw Master and Commander. And I was like, they actually filmed that on a square rigger. There's got to be a way I can do that. And I stumbled into Lammy, LA Maritime Institute and uh, volunteered on the same brigantines. And Jose and I actually met, uh, I think it was early September of that year on a trip down to a tall ship festival in Dana Point. And he was, yeah, yeah, he was laying out a new bowsprit net and uh, splicing that underway. And I was like, that's cool stuff. And he sucked me in and (laughs) did a lot of rigging. So pretty much Every, everything I know about rigging, not everything, but the bulk of what I know and certainly the ethic I use in rigging I got from Jose. So you sailed on both coasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess you call it professionally. You've been out there. Yeah. I mean, he actually paid you. And, paid. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. And David, you, you actually sailed on some, you, you have you a broad range. In, boat. Yeah, from, from the big like, to the small. Yeah, I, when I was a kid, um, the the lake out the window here, I used to have a, a little El Toro. That's um, <clears throat> that's about the extent of my uh, of my actually powered by wind sailing. I had a, a little eight foot El Toro, and I think a twelve foot Hobie Cat uh, Mono Cat. And but the um, the sailing that I have done is uh, actually on the vessel that Moran and um, Mike are on. That's where I started as a seventeen year old sailor. Uh, in the United States Navy. I also worked in engineering. Mike was an engineer. I worked obviously under our engineer. Uh, and it's always interesting for me to hear things uh, about the rigging being beautiful, about it being art as well as science, because you see that sometimes in uh, in other areas of engineering, boiler making and whatnot. Mm. It's always nice to see craft as well as function. Yes. Some real craftsmanship. So I did a couple of years on, uh, on the battleship and then I moved to... Um, to special boat unit 11 in Mare Island, uh, up in the middle part of the state, uh, San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, I did 11 years in, uh, an offshoot in Navy special warfare called, uh, special warfare combatant craft. So I have a couple thousand hours in little green boats, uh, that go fast. As I like to say, God guns and fast boats. That used to be our motto. And, uh, I ended up retiring after uh, 22 years active in reserve in the Navy and, was uh, fat, dumb, and happy doing a completely different job in Silicon Valley when I got sucked back into the maritime world, at least on the fringe of it, by uh, by working here at the museum. I always love the fat, dumb, and happy thing. I think we've all had that moment in life. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what's yours? <laughs> so, mine was kind of funny. My dad was a battleship sailor, grew up around boats, and and uh, helped uh, some people work on boats a little bit. I was a diesel mechanic originally before getting my engineering degree. Um, but but I had you know that inspiration from the National Geographic series. Remember yeah. those? And can can you do the song? You know, da 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 da. <laughs> so um, probably I just know, can't carry a tune. No, <laughs> that's for sure. In a bucket maybe. But uh, still, you know, I just love that kind of thing. And I I was able to go out on a, a small boat 
the Van Tuna, it was a research vessel at that point. It was originally owned by the owner of Van Camp, Van Camp uh, Tuna. It was his personal yacht. Like a hundred and ten foot, you know, twin diesel, and it had been uh, converted uh, to a research vessel just for coastal work um, by Occidental College. And I went out with uh, my marine biology teacher, Rivian Landy. Never forget her ever. Um, and I was just fascinated with that, and you know, just really inspired. It kind of fed an original inspiration. And and so I remember talking to her, you know, on the boat, and she goes, "Mike, talk to him." And so I chatted with the engineer that day. Um, and didn't get anywhere initially, but ended up, um, it was right next to uh, other research vessels for USC. And then next thing I know, I'm up at Cal State Long Beach pursuing my degree. And uh, lo and behold, the RV Yellowfin, an 80-footer, uh, twin diesel, of course, was looking for, um, I'll never forget this, temporary part-time intermittent help. <laughs> it's about as <laughs> tenuous as you can boat. get. I know. <laughs> that sounds uh, like so what boat. we need at the museum most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, you know, there's no way you're going to get a real job here, but we need you. And, and so they actually paid me, I want to say, you know, $16 an hour or something. And uh, you know, I went down and interviewed. I, w- I had a diesel mechanic background. They were like going, oh, he'll take you in a heartbeat. So I ended up kind of tooling around uh, in the Southern California bite, you know, basically from point conception and out 300 miles and down to the Mexican border doing either undergraduate research or, or uh, um, we did some grad research. We did actual fish and game work. You know, it was kind of fun, um, a little crazy at times. Um, and then and it was introduced to USC, the school, uh, who had uh, several vessels at that point, uh, anything from a 41-footer up to they were converting a 220-footer um, from a, a tuna boat into a research vessel. And that was kind of the beginning. I, I, I went down there and talked to the guy and, you know, had a drink with him, Don, I'll never forget him. And um, he, he offered me, he says, I, I pay my beginners from 6 to $8 an hour. And I said, I'll take eight. <laughs> and and, and uh, so that was good. And, and it, you know, that started off a almost six-year career at USC, you know, across the, um, uh, the Pacific, um, did, did one Trans-Pacific with them, flew to Kwajalein, flew to Guadalcanal, did, did some really fascinating things, but that job ended. But in the process, I was able to go and sit for my unlimited license. And so I ended up with an unlimited thirds. And the rest is kind of history. I ended up um, taking an odd year at the railroad. That's not maritime, obviously. I like trains, though, Jose. Um, and then, uh, and to be honest, so does David. But uh, oh, yeah. I finally, I, <laughs> I'm surrounded. And I finally got the call from my main maritime uh, uh, mentor, George, uh, main, uh, main maritime grad and uh, from Bangor. And he, uh, he called me up and says, Mike, i got a job for you. And so next thing I know, I, I get 1,000 days of sea time working on a, I would call it a search and survey vessel. And I spent a year in the Med, a year in the Gulf. Uh, we did everything from, we called it AFAB Marine, anything for a buck. Um, and uh, basically, you know, search and survey, pipeline surveys, um, seismic work for the, the oil patch, as we call it. Um, and then we did um, underwater seismic work where we, we installed seismic systems and even did some R&D for some underwater cabling. So that was an exciting job for me. Just loved it. And uh, some real sea time. You know, I was an, an engineer, obviously, but I spent a lot of time on deck. And uh, Jose, I've actually been up on the top of the mast here on this thing with you on the phone. Yeah. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, I remember. Well, you guys, yeah, we were yeah. putting up the. Uh, so when when things involve uh, climbing and and ropes and stuff like that, it's usually Moran and I out there on the either on the deck or up top. Um, other than the mooring lines, of course, which the the ops team handles. So sorry, that, yeah. mine was a longer story. I didn't mean to do it that way, but. Oh, that's fine. By the way, uh, 
some other time off the we should talk because i i've got connections to the usc through my wife who uh worked there in the marine biology department so. yeah i worked for the hancock institute for marine studies yeah. back in would have been the late 80s early 90s and uh, yeah. actually there's some wonderful history of research uh, with USC, <clears throat> with the Hancock Foundation. Alan Hancock was supporting mm -hmm. early qualitative, or quantitative rather, um, research down in the Galapagos. And back then it was kind of a, a yachty thing. They, he had a 110-foot personal yacht that was a quasi-research vessel, and they even had a, a piano in the, uh, you know, in the wardroom, if you will, and, and they would have yeah. these little music sessions in the evening. It was very genteel. Uh, they would go down and do research during the day, and then they'd sit around and drink and play music at night so but what a terrible well, life yeah. i know <laughs> uh, but really neat history there at usc a lot of it i think is is certainly changed if not truly gone but uh, mm -hmm. but it was wonderful experience for me wonderful because classing a vessel like that from an engineering perspective was fascinating it got me into the the, the world in, in a much deeper fashion and uh, my first trans-pacific was pretty extraordinary so really cool stuff neat so jose let's talk knots <laughs> Okay. That's not. That's not. Well, oh, you, really? You just did that? Wow. <laughs> well, don't worry. There's going to be lots of... Uh, Naughty bad. jokes? Yes. Yeah. Puns, mostly. Slightly faster than one mile per hour. <laughs> <laughs> So we uh, one of the one of the reasons we pulled you in a few months back was because we have recently acquired the bosun's chair that brought FDR aboard the ship in 1943, right. and yeah. uh, we hooked you up with our curator Dave Way because he needed to put a value on the chair to get it shipped out here, and we were like, how, "Okay, first priceless. of all, priceless, but you know, <laughs> how do you put some sort of dollar amount on all the effort that went into that?" and I'm just curious, what was your first thought when you saw the shots of that thing, the pictures of that thing? That was overwhelming. I mean, that there was a lot of work that went into that thing. It was very fancy. Yeah. Uh, you know, definitely uh, worthy of the president, uh, FDR. If anybody deserved a chair like that, it was him, for sure. So you know fancy knots a heck of a lot better than I do, but there's just so much work that went into that thing. What could you give kind of an hours estimate about about how long it might have taken oh i i don't know i yeah I mean, at, at least 40 I, you know wow. there's, there's got to be more probably uh but yeah it, it was considerable amount of work uh, i i'd have to look at it again but <laughs> there was a lot going on on that chair you, you yeah. should, we can show a picture here yeah well, yeah, well for the video amazing. version we'll put a picture up but yeah so um I guess one of the other things is what I've always loved about working with you is that you are, you insist on high quality work, but the, the quality and the functionality of it is, you know, something that you ingrained in me a long time ago and you might've created a monster, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> yes. Monster. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, why can't something functional be beautiful? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. And like I said, the, the golden age of sale was really, proven that not not only that with, with the functionality but also um that era it was easy to repair the ship by tying knots you know uh you're you're in a battle on the constitution or whatever you get some shroud shot away well you know you loosen up your lanyards and you do a shroud knot which is you know a wall knot on each side from the two uh ends that are coming together and then um boom you know your your ship's back together and you're you can you're back in the fight without losing a mass kind of thing you know 
So what kinds of things were you finding on Constitution that, you you know, you talked about it would being art, like art? Well, the, the rose lashings is a good example. Ooh. You know, you use that um, uh, around. Yeah. Um, one of the, the major examples of that is called a mouse on a stay. So, like, the main stay on the ship, the fore stay, uh, the mizzen stay, uh, and even the, the equivalent, the top stays. So you'd use... Instead of what you have now, say with wire rope, you make an eye around the, the, the mast up at the hounds. Uh, do I need to explain some of that stuff for the Yeah, listeners? sure. Because uh, right, so, I'm following you, but nobody else is going <laughs> to. Yeah, so um, at, at the top of the mast, you have an area where there's a, a change in diameter. So it allows for the, the rigging, the all the wire or the rope that's holding up the mast to stay. So you don't want it to slide down. If it was all just tapered like a pool cue, that stuff would all just come sliding down to the deck and be absolutely useless. So you have something which we call the hounds as the area where that change in diameter happens. So anyway, nowadays you would have on a modern stay that's made out of wire, it goes around the back of the mast over the hounds. It's spliced in place and that's it. In the case where you have a mouse on a stay, you have this lump that's created, and then you do this fancy knot work um, grafting around it, and that is a solid spot about, I'd say, two to three quarters of the way up the stay. And past that, coming around the mast again, is uh, you've created another eye on the end. And so what happens is, uh, this is great for people on the radio. So um, <laughs> Lin- Lindsay was very eloquent. He could he could describe this stuff, and you can imagine it right away. But uh, I, I'm not that gifted. So the idea is the the end of the stay has an eye on it, and so that eye comes all the way up the stay and catches on that big lump you've created, and okay. so it holds it from going any further, and that creates the larger eye that goes around the hounds of the mast. And what's brilliant about that is, for installing it is really easy, and for taking it apart is really easy. Uh, The other thing is, tension-wise, on a regular eye going around the mast, you've got each leg of that eye carrying half the tension of that stay. So that's reduction. But... In the situation where you have a, a, a mouse on a stay, <laughs> it's a good thing people can't see me because you know, I'm talking with my hands. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a Cuban thing. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> it comes around the back of the mast, and so that smaller eye is now the tension on it is quartered based well, on cool. what's going on. With the, you know, so it's it's better that way. And the other thing is. In those older vessels, you were bringing topmasts up or swaying them down, and so you you don't want to have to undo the stay. You, yeah. you know, you want to be able to just come down through it. So you, the mouse allows you to make a big enough eye that that whole topmast or to gallant mast or you know all of them can come down through it. Seriously? And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. For those of, for those of our <laughs> listeners who don't understand, we're not talking about four legged mouses. No, not at all. Or the kind that you use on your computer. No, no, not at all. (laughs) Either one of those. 
And there was a really nice article written by USS Constitution Museum about this process. And it's got pictures of a mouse that you guys made for Constitution uh, just from start to finish. So we will link that in the, the description so folks can check it out. That stuff is so fascinating. Like you wonder how we got away from it. I mean, you think people think it's more efficient or whatever, but that in terms of moving spars around, that's actually a lot more efficient. Well, you know, it, it, it was, but people don't move spars around as much as they used to. This is true. Say. This is true. And didn't you do a bunch with, uh, you know, more modern materials to take some of the weight out of the rig when you put her back together? We did, we did some, some Dyneema work. We did some Kevlar uh stuff i mean like speaking specifically about constitution i the majority of her rig is polyester uh rope you know three strand polyester four strand polyester and uh there there were some elements in the rig that were actually made out of wire rope and then hidden disguised so mm-hmm. you know kind of a la disney so it wouldn't look out of place which in my opinion was a lot more work than is needed considering that with the polyester rig, she's a lot stronger <laughs> than she was as a hemp rope rig, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and she went around the world with a hemp rope rig plenty of times. So going crazy with Kevlar and these modern things is overkill. And unfortunately, also the, the amount of tension you have to add because you have more elastic type materials, uh, you have to tension them up harder and She's an old girl, and yeah. she uh, she needs uh, more loving care than that. And so if she had a hemp rig right now, she'd be fine and probably not under the kind of tension that the, uh, the polyester or the other modern fibers would uh, create. Newer is not always better. Yeah. yeah no, really... well, because the, the funny thing about the newer materials, they're all, they're all trying to find that elusive perfection of... The hemp, you know, obviously hemp, the downside is it's weaker and it rots. Yeah. You know, so we now this stuff is stronger and doesn't rot as, you know, it takes a much longer time for it to rot, but, or be degraded by UV. But yeah. it's not, doesn't quite have the perfect characteristics that the other had for handling, for knot tying, stretch, that sort of thing. So we, we still haven't found that perfect line to to mimic what the old did but i have a bad kevlar story too we, we used it for uh, a lifting uh, line on a very large a-frame on the stern of a vessel the a-frame was 45 foot tall had a 36 inch pipe cross beam at the top <clears throat> had this huge pulley situation up there and i think we were running probably three inch material and we were doing a fifty thousand pound lift just for mm. testing on the deck and it parted about a foot and a half off the deck. Oh, no. It blew paint off the inside of the lazarette. Um, wow. And what it was was friction. Kevlar does not like friction. And it starts to melt and fuse and it starts mm. to weaken. And when yes. you're running that kind of uh, heavy material, you know, you're going to get yeah. in trouble. Um, so we had to reconfigure and redesign the, the whole system. And it, ultimately it worked. But, um, you know, we, we thought we were being smart using this trick stuff. And it turns out there's some downside to it. Yeah, uh, that's that's the thing. Uh, you really have to be aware of all the um, the pros and the cons yeah. of, of you know when you're choosing rope for its particular job. It, that's that's very important. Knowing the material and what it's capable of, but more importantly, what it's not. 
capable of or what its weaknesses are. Okay, we're going to break it right there and save the rest of this discussion for a second podcast. As usual, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, topics you'd like us to cover or anything you'd like to share, please shoot an email to podcast at labattleship.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at labattleship.com. And thank you so much for listening to Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt.